listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, let's turn together again to the Word of God and to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, moving to the third of these letters, verse number 12 and following. It is the letter from Christ to his beloved, uh, those who dwell in Pergamos. Revelation 2 and the verse number 12, the Word of God says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days for an antipas was my faithful martyr. He was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Amen. We thank the Lord again for his word unto our souls today. Each of these letters begin with a, a description of the Lord. And we see something regarding the Lord to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Each of these descriptions are relevant to the need of the church. That in itself is a comfort. Uh, Christ comes to us uh, with a very personal application of who he is. He comes to our particular and to our specific needs. You think of the church in Smyrna. They were going to be encouraged that if they were faithful, they'd have the crown of life and they would not be hurt by the second death. And who gives those promises? But he who was dead and is alive. And the promise is given, that's verse number eight, the promise is given from the resurrected Christ. He who has conquered death, who can then give these promises a crown of life and not hurt of the second death. And so it is to the church in Pergamos, he comes with a sharp sword, the sword that is warned against the evildoers, the false doctrine teachers in verse number 16, that he will come with them, against them with the sword of his mouth. The sword, this two-edged sword, the sword that we saw back in chapter 1. And the verse number uh, 12 and following, and we see the description of the Son of Man. There is Christ in the midst of the churches, and there he has a sword. And the sword is out of his, out of his mouth, and that sword is that sharp two-edged sword. Verse number 16, a sharp two-edged sword. 
Now this sword, it is generally recognized as a sword that comes with words of rebuke and judgment. I think the parallel verse is Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is the word of God of rebuke and judgment that challenges us of our sin and brings us to a place of repentance, or finally, the word that brings us to judgment itself. Oh, what a fearful thing it is to see Christ coming to us with his sword. And yet what a necessary thing it is also, the word of, the word of God comes to us, uh, that we would deal with our sin, and we would see our errors and repent, ere it be too late. So verse 16 says, repent. And we're going to see what they're going to repent of, but they are to repent. And the sword is drawn, they must repent, or else they will face the judgment of the Saviour. And so this church in Pergamos, well, it was necessary for them to see Christ with a sword drawn, coming with a sword from his mouth, the word of God bringing rebuke. And you see verse number 14, but I have a few things against thee. And yet this church is marked by its faithfulness. And we see thou holdest fast my name in verse number 13. And so in many ways we see a church that is faithful in times of persecution, and yet a church, whilst faithful, is marked by perilous times, times of real danger for its ongoing prosperity. And so as we look at this church in Pergamos, let me begin, as we consider their faithfulness, let me begin by the reality, the comfort, that the Lord knows their challenges. The Lord knows the challenges they face. Verse number 13, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, end of verse 13, where Satan dwelleth. Here's a, a recognition of the challenge they face of their, of their environment. Now, the authorities tell us, the various commentators and uh, historical dictionaries and the rest, they tell us that Pergamos was made by Rome, the capital of the province of Asia. And it was marked by pagan idolatry. And the God of healing was worshipped there. Again, it's pronounced in different ways and spelt in different ways. Asculapius, or something like that. And the God of healing was worshipped there, interestingly, under the emblem of a serpent. And if you've seen some of the modern uh, emblems of medicine, you will still see a serpent wrapped around a staff. And that comes from the city of Pergamos, as they worship this God of healing. There was also an altar in Pergamos, 120 feet long, 60 feet high, and that altar was dedicated to Zeus. So you get a sense of the paganism that was present, and so that might be part of what's involved when it says where Satan dwells. It was also the case, though, that Pergamos was especially devoted to the worship of Caesar. You remember in recent studies, we've, we've made the point that the Christian creed is Jesus Christ is Lord. That was in opposition to the Roman creed, Caesar is Lord. Well, in 29 B.C., Caesar granted permission for Pergamos to dedicate a temple to him. And thus, in Pergamos, there was the oft-repeated pagan creed, Caesar is Lord. And so you see this 
really multiple reasons whereby we could say, well, Satan dwells in Pergamos. If you think of Satan's role in the cities of the world, you see Satan promotes falsehood and acts by force. Satan's agenda is to promote paganism and to promote the power of earthly authorities in an anti-God agenda. We see some of these things in Pergamos. The exaltation of Caesar, false worship, and also the promoting, uh, the promoting of all manner of superstitious paganism. What a comfort it is when the Lord says, I know where thou dwellest. That's a tremendous comfort. For certainly in today's world, we see a world where Satan has tremendous influence in promoting falsehood and in, again, even using, using human authority to promote an anti-God agenda. You see the, the laws that have been passed in the Western world and in recent years, how many of those laws, they attack the authority of God and the authority of God's Word. We're seeing Satan dwelling amongst us, if you like. We dwell where Satan dwells. We see that in our cities. And the Lord knows. He knows all about us. He knows our battles. He knows our challenges. John Newton of course, well known for the hymn Amazing Grace, he would speak about the need for London grace. He was referring for the particular need for special grace if someone was to live in London. And all of the wickedness that was about in London in his day, well, you need London grace. Oh, how that's true in our generation. You, you name your town, you name your city, and you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need, I need Philadelphia grace. I need Malvern grace. I need whatever the case may be, Orlando grace. We, we, we need the grace of God in a very particular way because of the unique and special challenge we face. Many of us, we're not living. We're not living in some uh, countryside village where there's a church in every corner and everybody goes to church on the Sabbath day. We're living in a, in a context where Satan dwells. The promotion of paganism and the exaltation of earthly powers. What we should note, though, is that the Lord's remedy to these believers is not that they should move house and move into isolation. The Lord simply says, I know where you dwell. He doesn't tell them to, to get up and go somewhere else. They're all told to move to Smyrna. wasn't that far away. Uh, there's a recognition this is where God has placed them. And so he, he knows their challenges, but doesn't tell them to move away. Robert Murray McShane has, again, some wonderful little sermons on the seven churches. And he makes this comment regarding the church in Pergamos. It's, it's very comforting. That a believer cannot go to any place, but Jesus knows it. Do you live in an ungodly family, a lily among thorns? Christ says to you, I know where thou dwellest. Do you live in an ungodly neighborhood? Christ says to you, I know where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. The devil had his throne at Pergamos, and is he not in this town too? And so we can say that's very much true in our day and generation. We should take the comfort from this, that the Lord, he knows our challenges. But secondly, we should note that the Lord knows their commitment. The Lord does recognize their commitment. I know thy works. He sees their action, and the works are those that he commends. Verse number 13, thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. 
The Lord, the Lord recognizes. He's not blind to the commitment of the people of God. They hold fast. It speaks of a commitment. It speaks of a tenaciousness to not give up their grasp on Christ Jesus. They hold fast my name. It's a, it's a good picture of saving faith. For the faith whereby we lay hold of Christ for salvation is a faith that never lets Christ go. Well, let's recognize that they have held fast the name. This expanded with the phrase, or clause, has not denied my faith. The name of Christ and the faith being synonymous here, we're saying their commitment is to the doctrines of the gospel. The doctrines of Christ's person and work, they are faithful. I think of Paul's words to the church in Thessalonica. Remember, he warns about quenching the Spirit of God, not despising prophesyings, but hold fast that which is good. Take the Word of God. These are, these are people who are faithful. They're holding on to the Word of God regarding Christ. They're not denying the biblical doctrines. Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, hold fast the form of sound words. This is a matter of Christian fidelity. That we are we're given a deposit of the faith. The faith once delivered to the saints. We have that faith and we, we're not to let it go. You know, this church, they are committed to they are committed to the doctrines of Christ. And indeed they're loyal to Christ. And you think of the words, the warnings to the Hebrew believers that they are to hold fast their profession. Hebrews 4, 14, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Holding fast. What an important issue that is. Despite the paganism, despite ungodly powers around them, it was possible for the people of God to hold fast their faith. Simple thought. But perhaps you are raising young people in this world today and you see, oh, they are going to live where Satan dwells. What hope is there for them? Well, by the grace of God and the power of God, they are able to hold fast. Not in their own strength. In their own strength, they have, they have, they have nothing but hopelessness in front of them. But with God's strength, there is great hope. And this church, they hold fast their profession. They hold fast the name of God. Even though, even though there were friends and brothers dying for the faith. There's mention made of Antipas here. And some would say this is the only reference to Antipas we have. He's a faithful martyr. This word martyr that refers to the witness was then taken in this book of Revelation to describe those who for their witness for Christ lost their lives. Even though, even though some are dying for the faith, there are still those who are faithful, holding fast the faith. We might wonder if things get worse, if things deteriorate in the world, and people say, what, what if someone comes into this church and takes their brother away? And that brother loses their life for the faith. What's going to happen? Will we all abandon the Lord? And of ourselves, yes. But by the power of God, no. These are people who show us, they show us what grace can do. People who hold fast the name of Christ. And the Lord knows their commitment. And so he knows their challenges. He knows their commitment. And yet... The challenge they face presented them with a particular problem. Verse number 14. 
For in the third place, the Lord knows their compromise. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. Here's a church that is marked by faithfulness, but have an unwise and a dangerous tolerance of those who were teaching doctrinal error. So they hold fast the name, but there are those in their midst who are holding the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam, and his doctrine is defined in our text in verse number 14, as a doctrine that really taught the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. And you go back to Numbers 25 and you'll see a description of that particular sin. Numbers 25, it has to do with the people of God joining to be BLPR. That's verse number 3 of 25 of Numbers, and Israel joined himself unto BLPR. And what does that describe? Well, verse number 1, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifice of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Idolatry and immorality. And that follows, it follows the fascinating discussion regarding Balaam and Balak. Balak wanted, he wanted Balaam to curse the people. Balaam couldn't curse the people. Now, what we don't get in Numbers 25 is the reason behind the people's wickedness. Well, look at Numbers 31. Because it's not till later on that you see what's happening here. Numbers 31, verse 16, Behold, these caused the children of Israel, listen to this, through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. It was the counsel of Balaam that brought about this wickedness. So there are some who speculate with good grounds that what happened here was, well, Balak, Balak did not get his way, and it suggested, well, Balaam suggested to Balak, well, here's how you'll get the people. I can't curse them, but they will suffer harm when they engage in moral compromise and engage in the idolatry of the world around them. Hence, the doctrine of Balaam is to promote compromise in religion, encouraging idolatry and immorality to mix in the life of the people of God. It's a dangerous and destroying doctrine. The Nicolaitans mentioned in verse number 15, it's somewhat more difficult to know exactly uh, what their doctrine is. Some will say it's a similar doctrine. And they say, so hast thou also them. And the idea that there's a, a similarity here. Hendrickson, uh, the commentator, suggests that what's in view here is that the people recognize that, well, isolation was no good. The church being isolated from the world is having, having no impact. Therefore, integration is a good idea. And we'll, we'll cast a blind eye towards these wickednesses. So the doctrine of Balaam, Encourages full-on cooperation and compromise. Uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, perhaps, uh, just a blind eye to some of these things in the church. And you can see how these things fit together. It's hard to be dogmatic and, and assert dogmatically what the Nicolaitans was, but that's Hendrickson's suggestion. 
What we do understand clearly is this church in Pergamos were guilty of a failure to discipline. These things are being talked about and taught in the church. Look what it says there. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Christ says to the church, you hold the faith of Christ. But there are those who hold the false doctrines. You're not holding that doctrine, but you're tolerating those who do hold that doctrine. It's a counsel to discipline false teaching. And not to tolerate false teaching, but to put it out of the church. There's a common illustration used regarding uh, some of these things, and it's used regarding this church. And it's the metaphor, the picture of a ship in the sea. Uh, the ship in the sea, well, the ship is on the water. But when the water gets into the ship, then there's trouble. And so in Pergamos, the ship of the church is sailing on the water. But what's happening here is now the water is getting into the church and trouble is afoot. Compromise happens slowly. What happens in the church is there's an increasing tolerance of the things that God hates. And it takes the souls away from Christ Jesus. I'm certainly concerned, as many others are, by a mindset that exists in the evangelical church today known as redeeming the culture. This idea of taking those things that are wicked and Christianizing them in some fashion. It might be the world's music, the world's attitudes, whatever it might be, but we should, we should take the world and redeem its culture. Now, indeed, everything that is given to us by God that is good should be used in the church, of course, and we use God's good gifts. But we should not claim or attempt to reclaim that which is sinful. We can't sanctify that which promotes sinful thinking and immoral behavior. That's a dangerous path to take. And yet it's happening in our churches. Worldly music has come into our worship with the attempt of pleasing the world. And there are now tunes that do not fit the great dignified doctrines of the gospel. Let's please the world by bringing the world into the church. It doesn't work. It's dangerous. It leads people well. The world do it better. So let's go to the world fully. You see, there's a connection between idolatry and immorality. These things are connected. We sin when we deny the true God and his authority. Here there's idolatry and immorality together. And immorality goes easy when there is no God in authority. And so false gods are permissive gods. When you've false gods that are no gods, they're, they're permissive because they've been invented by men. The true God is a God of authority. We need orthodoxy, correct doctrine, and orthopraxy. The highest views of God will give the highest views of holiness. A low view of God will lead to a low view of sin. These things are connected. Good doctrine and good practice. And so we must beware confessional correctness and tolerating moral casualness. A loose view regarding strong drink, easy divorce, premarital relationships, and blind eye to the world's wickedness. Oh, but our confession is good. 
We must be careful we don't hold the doctrine of Balaam. We've got to keep our church pure doctrinally and also in terms of its morality. So how do we feel about these things? Is it not the case the temptation is that we want to please the world? And therefore, when we're more like the world, this is what's happening here in Pergamos. We must understand that a difficult environment is no excuse for a lack of faithfulness. We live in wicked, wicked times. And such wickedness does not excuse us if we are not faithful to Christ and to his word. False teaching regarding these things has a tendency to destroy faithfulness. We must pray much for God to give us a life of piety and purity, holding to Christ and living in truth. Because faithfulness to doctrines and faithfulness to Christ in part can exist when compromise is present. But it's dangerous and destructive. See, faithfulness does not grant an immunity from errors A church can be faithful to so much and yet still tolerate errors in its midst. A tolerance of error does not mean someone's not a Christian. It doesn't unchristianize a church. This is a a true church and yet they're tolerating errors in their midst. But the necessity in light of Pergamos is to be faithful in word, in doctrine, and in practice. That we guard our affections that I have a love for Christ, we'd hate the world. A love for Christ would make us intolerant of everything that would be against the gospel. We need our heads. We need our heads rightly informed. We need our hearts rightly warmed. Uh, We need our hands doing that which is pleasing in the sight of God. We need all these things together. Defect of head, heart, or hand is a problem to which Christ says, repent, verse 16, or else I will come unto thee quickly. I'm going to go back next time and look at the promises that are given to this church, the hidden manna and the white stone. Because the Lord does, he gives them precious promises. He's pleased, he's pleased to reward those who seek to be faithful to him. And may God help us to think these things through for the glory and honor of his name. Amen and amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.